Hi, everybody. My name is Ken Rimple, and this is Tech Chat Tuesday for Tuesday, October 6th, 2020. Uh, and I'm here today with Dan Boykus. Say hi, Dan. Hello, everyone. <laughs> and uh, Dan and I work for Chariot. Obviously, a uh, couple things um, as we get started with our Tech Chat Tuesday today. want to point you to a few things that are happening out there. The main thing is that we have an event coming up uh, at uh, Chariot Um it's a Java at 25 event. Let me bring that up on the screen so people can see this. All right. So Java at 25, Retrospective and Futures. And this is a thing we're doing uh, on October 21st, 2020. Uh, it's going to be from 3.15 to 5 p.m. with a happy hour afterwards. It's going to start with a, a discussion between myself and Aaron Mulder, our, C our CTO, uh, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, our journey with Java over the years at Chariot. You know, one of the first things we did was Java, uh, a lot of Java-based applications early on, and it's been with us, whether it's Java itself or on the JVM various languages, such as Groovy or Scala or Clojure or what have you, uh, and, you know, back-end applications, mobile apps. So we're going to talk about that, talk about some of the things we've done that uh, worked and maybe some things that were dead ends that we've learned about we moved on from. Uh, and we'll do that first as the first opening uh, act. And then the second part of it, we have a special guest, Brian Getz, who is the Java language architect at Oracle. He's spoken at Philly Emerging Tech uh, multiple times, both as a keynote and as a regular speaker. He's just a great guy to, to have out and talk about where Java is. So we'll talk about the JDK, where it's headed, what's going on with the different VMs and uh, you know various ways it's being enhanced, both at a language level and architecture level. And then after that, we're going to start uh, a Zoom happy hour. I think we're currently looking at a tool called Gather for that, uh, but stay tuned. Once you register, we'll give you information. The other cool thing is we have a little deal with uh, um, or La Colombe, if I can say it right, uh, for coffee and workhorse brewing for a vanilla, co vanilla coffee porter, uh, and we'll send discount codes to the attendees uh, two weeks out. So you can order your coffee or your coffee beer and enjoy it while you're on the happy hour with us. And that's what's coming up. Uh, also at Chariot, if you head over to our resources blog, you'll see a lot of things being published these days. And then we had uh, Matt Gilbride on uh, recently for the uh, AWS CDK for talkies given. Um, and he was learning about, you know, the costs associated with running things like ZoneMinder in an EC2 instance and how to optimize his EC2 instances. Uh, he has an updated blog article there. Uh, we also have another one from him. He was on a roll there. So he was looking at Vue 3.0. Uh, we have some blog entries by Tracy uh, Wilson-Rossman on consumer habits uh, and an interview with Tiffany Wilson, who's the new president and CEO of the Science Center. So if you head over to our blog, you see a lot of good information. All of our tech chats will be on the screencasts section. Uh, and so you'll see that. You'll see a talk that I uh, recently gave about AWS Code Build uh, and a bunch of other stuff. So head over to our resources page, check those things out. And of course, the tech chats are available there as well on the podcast section. Uh, and we have them all. And you can subscribe to them as well. There's the RSS and iTunes links. In addition to that, if you head over to YouTube uh, slash Chariot Solutions, you'll see we have a ton of content out there as well. Uh, so, for example, uh, we just did a talk. We're doing this talk right now. Uh, but Dan had a talk on uh, his Chariot Day talk, which we're going to talk about during uh, the uh, middle of this uh, podcast. Uh, 
And so that's there. There's a whole bunch of other uh, podcasts there, the Tech Chat Tuesdays. If you go to playlists, you'll see playlists for those uh, for 15 minutes with, which are interviews with our people uh, and various people in the open source uh, business uh, leaders in the community and tech leaders. You'll see all of our Philadelphia ETE, Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise talks from 2020 are all online. So you can see all of the different things that uh, our speakers had talked about right there, uh, as well as other various years uh, and other conferences, such as our IoT on AWS conference and single page app uh, conferences. So that's that. Um, secondly, uh, let's get started with some developer news. Let me turn off the screen here. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's you know cool little tool, but you got to get better at switching, and I'm not there yet. All right, so let's talk about some uh, things that are happening out there in the developer community and the dev news, uh, at least. All right, so the first thing is, let me find my uh, notes. NVIDIA has announced a, why is this goofing off on me? Hold on one second, everybody. Professionalism falls apart when most needed. Here we go. Let me bring this up. So NVIDIA has created a uh, embedded systems uh, board, kind of like an Arduino, uh, but it's using the NVIDIA GPUs. And I'm just going to bring this up here. It's the Jetson Nano 2 gigabyte developer kit. Now, this has been around for a while uh, in various forms. There's a 4 gigabyte version, for example, and there was an earlier uh, rev of this. But they're trying to bring this down to prices uh, that can be affordable for the hobbyist for AI or robotics. So Dan, this is a 128 core, uh, uh, you know, ARM processor using NVIDIA's cores. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, I, I understand now why they bought ARM. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they can lower those prices and they can yeah, embed the stuff without yeah. licensing. Yeah. So I think this is sort of a big deal. Um, yeah. I, I, I think a lot of this type of development. Um, is not easily accessible unless you have like credits on you know a cloud provider that has a crazy gpu that you can use right um or unless you shell out a bunch of money for your own yeah right um, exactly so like for instance i think a lot like a lot of people um you know most most people that just have laptops you know you pretty much either have to start shelling out a bunch of money for a desktop pc Mm -hmm. um, that you built yourself with these specs, or use you know get some credits for a cloud provider and start using their GPU to train something. Um, this actually, I think, is very reasonable for somebody to buy and play with. Fifty nine bucks, interesting. Yeah, which is, that's great. You know, for what it brings yeah, you. Like if you go to you know any cloud provider with a decent GPU, you know you'll burn through that and. In a matter of weeks, in like no time. Yeah, Easy. exactly. Yeah, so this is kind of interesting. We thought this was a cool little announcement, um, and so that's one. We also have uh, another interesting update: Python three nine. So let me bring that up. Uh, and Python three nine has a couple of cool new features in it. One of which is time zones, right, Dan? Yeah, that's that's a big deal um, for people that work with time zones. So I'm kind of like with two minds about it. Like one is why did it take so long? <laughs> but two is, well, if it took so long and Python's still super popular and people solve these problems, like maybe it wasn't that necessary. But it seems like, you know, time zones is something that 
like all serious languages should just support out of the box. And as I say that, like Java, which is like the ultimate, you know, serious language, yeah, didn't support it really well until Java eight. So, but that's very nice that um, time zones are support. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people deleting a lot of not necessary code. Um, and it looks like a lot of other interesting things in here too. Um, you know, like so, for example, enhancements to updating dictionaries and um, type, hints. type hints. That's a cool thing, right? Yes. They're types, but they're dynamic. Um, but it'd be nice to be able to hint that and say this is supposed to be a number, for example. Uh, so a lot of cool features. Check that out. Uh, I'll put the, uh, the link for these things in a minute up on the chat here. Uh, another cool thing, we are getting a faster uh, RAM uh, structure. So DDR4 is the current fastest RAM you can get. I know a lot of laptops, I think, if I'm right, laptops are still doing DDR3 for power management, mostly. Um, desktops usually have DDR4. Um, but DDR5 is coming. And so the first uh, 64 gig modules are out. So you'll see this first in servers. Um, but these are going to be really, really fast. I think it's a double the bandwidth of what you have now. Uh, and this is on uh, Anantec. An Antec. Uh, and so you can see some of the specs here are kind of crazy. Um, they think that they're going to be able to double the memory uh, speed, and also they're bringing the voltage down to 1.1 volts. So hopefully that means that this is something you can put in a laptop, ultimately, with lower power consumption. Yeah, this is pretty exciting. Um, kind of makes me want to build a desktop again. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like, you know, I have... Uh, for a while, I bought uh, a uh, Surface Book that I've been using, and then my wife had to start working from home, and I'm like, well, the cool machine goes to her. <laughs> but it had a nice GPU 1060 in it for a desktop. It's minor, but for a laptop, that was nice. So I could do some stuff if I really had the inclination in GPU programming and such, but, um, you know, and things like that. But in terms of, of having nice, fast, you know, low-power uh, RAM, that would be nice because that was always still limited to 16 gigs. Which I think is still very, very small for a programmer for a desktop these days. So, yeah. you know, um, you got a couple of Docker containers, a VM or two, and you're done. Yeah. Slack, <laughs> <laughs> a couple of Electron apps. Yeah, any Electron apps, right? Any of them. That's crazy. All right, next up uh, we have, uh, I'm going to let you take this one over. So, this was from Joel.net. Uh, how one guy ruined Hacktoberfest 2020. What happened, Dan? Yeah, so the, the, the short story is that uh, DigitalOcean, which is a very popular, um, I guess they're the what cloud provider, I guess yeah. you call them. Um, they have a good good intentioned event called Hacktoberfest, uh, where if you contribute to an open source project with a pull request, they give you a T-shirt, which is great. Um, except with a lot of good intentions, you know, there's sometimes there's drawbacks and things don't work quite as you expect. So there's people that started gaming the system. Um, a one uh, YouTube uh, personality with a lot of followers, and we're not going to name them, um, basically started demonstrating how you can do a bunch of low-quality pull requests where, like, oh, you just, like, have a new line here or some dashes there, right, in the readme or something like this that. This is amazing in a readme. Yeah. Yes. Just, like, <laughs> just stuff that, like, wastes a maintainer's time. Like, they're not even necessarily even spelling, like, you know, fixes. They're just, you know. I formatted something a little bit here. Here's a pull request. Mm -hmm. And so you spam 10 of these to um, a bunch of open source projects and you get a t-shirt. So unfortunately, you know, 
So I've created a lot of drama because a lot of open source projects, like maintainers aren't, you know, they're already doing this, you know, based on, you know, they're just out of the goodness of their heart, right? Yeah. And uh, it's a, they're not getting paid for this. And now, you know, they're already getting hit with pull requests and bug triage and all sorts of things um, that they're not getting paid for. And now they're getting a bunch of low quality pull requests. That they're they getting have spam in PRs, yes. which is painful at best. So oh, that's a shame. Um, you know, it, it reminds me like, you know, I've, I've been dealing with our website and, you know, everyone's had at one point had a WordPress site. And the first thing you get is a ton of comment spam. So you get rid of the yeah. commenting system and you're like, you find another commenting tool that doesn't have the spam in it. And you're plugging these holes and you get post submission spam. And like, it's, it never ends, you know, and that's all we need now is for GitHub, for example, to get polluted with lots of stupid spam. That's, that's a shame. So hopefully there can be some way of, I don't know if there's like a verification process or something, but it's kind of like a bug built into the system. You want to have be, people be able to do a PR you want to have spam checking on the PR submit? I don't know. Maybe see, not a bad the idea. The other issue is like it's not even spam, right? Like a lot of these people probably don't realize like they're normal people, right? That's not some business trying to, you know, right. send out millions of emails or something like that. Like these are just people that are trying to get a t-shirt and maybe don't realize that, well, not maybe, they definitely don't realize that doing these type of low quality PRs are um they're affecting maintainers downstream. Yeah. I think a lot of people, when they do this stuff, they don't think about like how these maintainers, like how, how they come to be, you know, right. you just kind of think of it as a given and that these are not hobbyists that are putting a lot of their free time in the evenings, you know, like when the kids are you know put to bed or something like that. Right. Yeah. It's and, one of those scratching an itch kind of things. Yeah. Like they, they, they found something that was really useful to them and they probably turned it into something for other people to enjoy and use. And now they're getting bugged with this. Yeah. And I feel a little bit bad because some of these people are, I don't think they're realizing that um, like the, the people that are doing the PRs, I don't think they're realizing that they're, they're hurting uh, the maintainers downstream probably for their favorite open source project that they actually like. Using. <laughs> right. Right, um, right. So I think that it just, there needs to be a lot more education around this type of stuff. Um, and potentially, I mean, maybe GitHub could think about doing some sort of reputation based system, but then again, I don't know. Um, you start filtering out new users, have it, like it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult problem. I mean, it's not like you could AI, you can't like AI scan it for things as people modify their comments all the time and read me's and right. things like that, fix line feed formats. So it's like that kind of thing would be a regular PR sometimes just to clean up something. Yeah. So it's, it's a, yeah, it's a hard problem. Um, and I guess these, these all, all these things happen, you know, with scale, right? Like, so before yep. you had GitHub, like that was SourceForge, like there was no PRs, right? Right. <laughs> like it was very difficult to get involved, right? With GitHub, it's seamless, which is good. You want that, but at the same time, sometimes it's sometimes it's a little too seamless. Yeah, too easy to get involved. Yeah. All right, cool. So uh, interesting dev news. Let me drop these all in the in the comments here, real quick, and we'll move on. So let's talk a little bit now about uh, your talk that you did recently. So we have this internal conference, Chariot Day, that we've been running for years. Uh, Dan and his colleague Anatoly Polinsky have been our stewards of that conference and running it. And at some point, we want to have both of them on to talk about 
the fact that they do that. And they also do fully emerging technologies for the enterprise too. They help curate that conference, which is a huge job. Uh, there's a lot of people involved in that. Yeah. Including you, Ken. Yes, that's true. But I mean, you guys are kind of like leading the the organization of everything and, and also all of us participating on those different committees. Um, so we'll, we'll put you guys on for that because I want to talk about that in depth uh, another time. But the main thing is, you know, we're all stuck here. Um, you know, in general, even before that, I mean, you, you as a consultant and all of us as consultants have to mentor people in new technologies on a regular basis, right? Absolutely. So how has that changed for you uh, now that you've been, you know, not working from the office, uh, you know, at the moment? Like how, so how do you good. mentor new people or mentor people in new technologies? Yeah, so just to give people that are watching a little context, um, so shared consultants um, generally are expected to um, mentor people uh, on projects, right? So we're, uh, in, in generally, we're, we're senior, right? We've been there before, we generally like to think we know what we're doing, right? And our customers kind of realize that. And so we do uh, quite a bit of mentoring. Um, on the project, just work with other people, right? There's more junior developers, right? You want to bring them up to speed, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the issue is that once, you know, the world changed in March, um, at least for all of us here, um, well, how do you keep that going with uh, now that everybody is remote, right? Um, so there's a couple ways. Um, and I think some of the things I told um, the more junior people on my team that they um, maybe haven't heard anywhere else um, is one, uh, you need to over communicate, right? Like, so now before you could have like a water cooler conversation, right? Or somebody would just be walking by and ask you, oh, how's that going? And you tell them and that's fine. Um, like all those little serendipitous situations, they're, they're all gone now. So it's very important to over communicate and not to get frustrated by having to repeat yourself many, many times. Um, and that's just that's just the nature of, uh, I think, remote work, that over communication is key. Um, two, uh, because of over communication, you're also the, the other part of it is now you're more of a written culture, right? Like before you could just talk to people and hash something out. Now, while that's still great, like you could do that over, you know, Zoom or a phone call or something like that, um, you can't just bring other people into the meeting as easily anymore. Um, so it's important to write things down so that somebody else actually has a, like a, a trail to follow of, you know, what happened. So there's a lot more writing going on now um, for our teams. Um, I'm personally doing a lot more writing and I, I feel like you know, it's incumbent on me to do that um, as, you know, the senior person on the team and to get junior people to write a lot more. Um, and that's a big shift because a lot of people, including senior people, right, they don't necessarily like to do a bunch of documentation, right? But this isn't even documentation sometimes. Sometimes it's like, oh, well, here's the rationale of, like, how we got to a decision. Like, this isn't even documenting you know, a concrete thing like, oh, this is a class, this is, you know, have some comments or this is a PR request. This is like, okay, well, this is what we were thinking. And these are the kind of trade-offs that we made before we made the decision. Context and reasoning right. around it. So people so, can have an idea for what's going, why they're using something or what's 
the rationale. Yeah. yeah, so I think the job changed quite a bit because this over communication bit is has become like much more emphasized. Mm -hmm. um, when you're all co-located or mostly co-located, it's not quite as big of a deal. Um, the other thing, um, I mean, this is kind of obvious, but um, you should have uh, like a a separation of you know your your work and life, um, <laughs> and that's it's hard. Not always, that's that's not always easy to achieve because you feel like oh well you're always connected so you know it's nine o'clock you know and I got a ping on Slack you know why don't I go take a look into it you know just real quick mm -hmm. five minutes nothing's real quick is it <laughs> yeah, exactly there's nothing real quick about that you know. Nope. It could be 1030 and you're still looking into it from that little innocent thing you got at night. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's very important to have a, like a partition between your, um, your work life and your, you know, your, your personal life. Um, something else that I personally do, um, a lot more is I screen share with, with people because before I could just pair with them. Like I'd come over, like I didn't need my laptop. I just come over and say like, okay, well, what are you doing? Show me blah 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 and we would hash it out now I, I find that I do a lot more zoom calls um, mm -hmm. like direct you know that doesn't necessarily have to be zoom it could be whatever whatever you know. slack or whatever yeah well whatever, whatever you have video. it video yeah. and so you yeah. do a lot more of those and you then you know show your monitor you share your screen right mm -hmm. and the other quick note about sharing your screen like make sure you close all the other stuff when you're presenting your screen um, because yep. Uh, there's, it's very distracting a lot of times when like some people have like outlook going, right? Like it's, it's always dropping down from the top, you know, you got a message, you got a message or you got a slack or you got to pop up here and pop up there. I mean, worst case, it, there could be something really embarrassing, but like general average case is just super distracting. Yeah. Because like the person that, is, that you're trying to show something, they don't need to see all that. Right. You know, exactly. Superfluous stuff going on. So yeah, close all your stuff, right? And then show the screen, show only the stuff that is actually relevant, right? So I, sh I share a lot more of my screen to kind of have people see what I'm doing and then have them show their screen so I could see what they're doing. And sometimes you can spot mistakes right away when you do that. Um, and sometimes that's much more productive than like having an elaborate conversation, you know, over chat, trying to describe stuff and that's very lossy. Um, Hey, so quick question for you. Quick question for you while you're yeah. going down that road. So, do you find that now you're memorializing things more in wikis again? Because I know that before that was that was wildly popular like ten years ago, and then it kind of slowly trailed off to the point where it was a necessary evil. But I think now it's even more important to have something like that. So, is that where you're putting things? Are you putting things in like Google Docs or like how how do you end up sharing information more? So, I still have a big dislike of like a lot of wikis um, mm -hmm. because a lot of times they just turn into like a write only situation where yep. um, your code lib. So my rationale, and again, the different organizations work differently. Maybe some places are more organized with it, mm -hmm. but in my experience, a lot of the times the wiki would just be like a thing on the side. And then like some people try to search it and hopefully find something. And a lot of times it's be out of date. So I prefer to have documentation um, in like, so, uh, my client currently uses GitHub, mm -hmm. so I prefer to have documentation there. So it's like in Markdown Docs or whatever in a yeah. project. Yeah, Markdown mm -hmm. Docs. Yeah, GitHub also supports like ASCII Doc and other stuff. Yep. But mm -hmm. Yeah, Markdown is what we use. So a lot of Markdown Docs. Um, 
And that way, you know, you could do pull requests. Like it's all the same flow. There's just more of it now. Right. Um, so most of it is still in, in GitHub. Okay. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And if you feel like it works better for um, the current situation that I'm in, um, like maybe, you know, somebody else has a better wiki culture. It's just in my experience, the wiki culture has always been like, yeah, let's write it down and then try to find something in the wiki and never find it. Yeah, yeah. I think it depends on the organization. Sometimes there are ones that are better, like strong users of Confluence or something right. like that. But I think you have a good point, which is if you put the docs in there in the GitHub projects, they're also versioned. So you can see over time how they evolve too. So you can see who worked on them and what the changes were, you know, so you get a feel for what's going on in the project. So that's yeah, I just feel like for developers, it's pretty natural. Like you're already writing Markdown. Yeah. I mean, right. They're highly likely that you know Markdown. Right. And it renders nicely in GitHub, you know, right. so you're done at that point. Yeah. yeah, so there's less friction that way. Yeah, um, I agree. The other thing I would say, like going back to like separation of stuff. Um, so I find what works for me and I've tried to recommend this to everybody. And I don't know if you're doing this, Ken, but I'm going to recommend it to you right now if you're not. Um, <laughs> if you're using Firefox, right, there's um, multi-tab contain, like multi-account uh, tab containers. Mm -hmm. Very good. I highly really? recommend you check that out if, you, if you're not right now. So different tabs having, like you could say, I have a container of these tabs on this particular account and my personal ones on another one. Right. So I have like work tabs. I have like, um, for instance, um, so I think in, initially they're designed to like protect your privacy. Mm -hmm. I think that was the original rationale. So like if you're on social media, right, like you have certain tabs and like the cookies aren't shared between those. So whatever is in this tab only gets to see uh, it's kind of quarantined and using the word quarantine, um, but it's kind of quarantined in that group, right? Like it doesn't see other stuff, right? So I have work tabs and I have like my tabs, right? And work mm -hmm. tabs and my tabs don't intersect, right? So that way when I'm done, you could say like, okay, we'll hide this whole group of tabs and then they're hidden and they're gone, right? So yes. That thing right there. That's exactly it. And I highly recommend people check this out. Um, so I have the same thing. Like I have a social media tab, right? I have a banking tab. I have a work tab and I have a personal tab. Great idea. And it's, it's really nice to organize. It helps you organize your life when you're working. Yeah. Great. So I recommend that everybody on the team and everybody I meet nowadays, um, to, to give this a shot. It's, it's very nice. And the cool thing is that like, once you're done with like work or whatever task, shopping, whatever it is, you could just click and say, hide it. And they're gone. And, and then whenever you need the them yeah, you can then bring them back and move them to a separate window. Nice. Right? Which is also nice. That's so it's a really nice uh, workflow. Um, I recommend everybody check it out. Yep, I just posted that plugin out there or that add-on to uh, the, the the notes here. Right. Awesome. And it goes without saying that like you should probably have a stable routine too when you're working from home. Yep. Right. right? Like, yep. don't start working at weird hours. Like try to keep it the same, like nine to five or whatever you were doing, like try to keep that pretty much as close to how it was back in the day as, as possible. Yeah. I find that the, the difficulty for me is my kids are older now. So you've got like the high school and middle school kids with their computers and their issues. And you're like, I just want you to go over here and do something without me. Yeah, not not every me. problem can be solved with like, yeah, that's, yeah. I, I feel like that's just, we're the, all in that. Yeah. To some degree. Yeah. 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 Yeah, right. so if somebody was to run behind me right now, right? Like, I'm sure the viewers wouldn't understand. Right? Like yeah. 
Because everyone's going through that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. So uh, let's talk about the other reason we brought you on. So you had a talk uh, for this Chariot Day internal conference called the Baby JVM. Um, and so first of all, uh, you know, the talk, if I could summarize it, is you, you took uh, the byte code of a Java class file and you parsed it with Python. Yeah. To actually review what's going on. So A, what let you what led you into doing this particular talk? And B, like, uh, let's just talk about the, the, the guts of it a little bit first, and then we'll go a little further. But let's start with what your, your motivation was for it. Um, motivation is honestly, like, um, the first motivation was just to have some fun. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, like, it's not, I feel like as a Java pro, um, and, you know, speaking of the 25-year anniversary, right, like a lot of us in, at the Chariot have very deep Java experience. Um, yeah. and JVM experience. Um, but like as a, as a, as a pro, you pretty rarely, you know, day to day, you're likely not going to encounter, you know, this type of, like you, you won't need this type of deep knowledge. So most of it was just for fun. Um, the, the upside is right. Like once you know stuff a little deeper, it's, it's easier to work with it. You know, it's a, you have more confidence once you know how the layers on the bottom work, and you're working mm -hmm. on the top layers. You're kind of more confident in your top layers because you understand what's going on a level below, right? It's kind of the same thing with like teachers, right? Like if you're teaching math, it's good to know like a level or two above where your students are at, right? So you kind of it's it's the same type of thing. Sure. Right? Like whenever you work with something, it's the deeper under, the deeper your understanding, the, the the better the outcome will be. Um, and you might not use it all the time, but you know, or won't even know when to apply it. But like one of those situations I, I think in life is like, you're like, Oh, when will I ever use this? And if you don't know about it, you never will. Right. You'll never identify a moment where you're like, Oh, I know this. I can use it here. Right. right. Like if you don't know something, you'll never have that. Oh, Oh yeah. I can, I can apply that right here. I learned. So it's, it's one of those situations, but mostly it's just for fun. Um, just to see how stuff works and, understand things a little better so that was that was the motivation behind um, um uh, you know talk, learning yeah. a little bit more about it mm -hmm. and part of it is also um like i read a bunch of stuff about it before right and, and technical specs and stuff like that but i never actually like sat down and really um got into the guts of it which i thought was also pretty pretty educational so the talk was basically parsing again, parsing the class file. Yeah. Um, and so the class files have a pretty well-defined, well, they have to because every JVM has to operate on them. They have a very strongly defined structure, right? Yes. And some of the things haven't changed in years. For example, like, uh, the, what is it? Uh, cafe babe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, the magic text signature, the magic signature. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the magic, uh, the magic two bytes in, in the beginning. Yep, yep. Every class file. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, so also, not only have they not changed class files, um, I've learned a cool trick. Um, so whenever you're looking at a class file from, I mean, it's not really a trick, but it's yeah. observation, I guess, mm -hmm. that I've learned. It's, it's not my observation. I just I found it online. Mm -hmm. um, so every, every class file that you inspect, you should inspect, like if you use Java P, right, which is like the go-to way of inspecting class files, no matter what class file you have, you should always use the latest JDK's Java P because they're all backwards compatible, but J Java P's get better every. Oh, really? Yes. 
So you should always use, no matter what the, how old the class file is, you should always use the latest possible Java P to inspect that class file. Um, and you'll get, you know, all the goodness that they've added since um, into that Java P. So it'll help. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a neat trick. So not only have they not changed, um, you know, because the JVM has been so stable and they don't break backwards compatibility, especially at that level. Um, you can use the latest Java P and get all the, the nice features uh, of that latest Java P that will show you that you wouldn't get if you were using an older Java P. Right. So yeah, so basically what I did was I, I, I took apart a class file by hand, well, by hand meaning, you know. By Python. Hand. Reading in the bytes <laughs> and like parsing them and making sense of them. So basically sort of re-implementing Java P from scratch. Mm -hmm. um, because well, Java P shows you stuff, it's kind of magical. It's like, okay, well, where does this live? Um, so I basically went from like a hex dump um, of the file to parsing it with a language that's not Java, so Python, um, and taking a look into it and like see how stuff is organized and following the spec. Um, and I think it was it was pretty educational. I think everybody um, that's like really interested in Java should give that a shot. I think um, there, there's a lot of things that like I read about that became a lot more concrete when you're actually at the keyboard, you know, typing and parsing stuff. Um, so right. like, oh, okay, so you know, that's what the constant pool looks like, right? Like stuff like that. It's like, okay, I've been reading about it. Now I see it. It's, it's, a, it's a little, it's a little more concrete in my mind now than it used to be. Right, and as you said, like it's it's it. Baby JVM is kind of a a play on it, but it's not really that you're building a real JVM. But you, that's basically the the thing that they all have to do is yeah. scan class files and put together their parse tree of everything. And and if they were going to go so far as to run the bytecode to actually pull in the operations, the operands, and everything and execute them. So, but there are other languages, right? There are other versions of the JVM written in other base languages, right? Yeah, I think that's what people. Um, or at least new people to uh, Java don't really realize is that there's a lot of JVMs yep. um, and the JVM format, like there's there's JVMs written in JavaScript. Um, there's JVMs written in all sorts of languages. Like yep. OpenJDK is C++, right? But like there's, yep. there's, there's other JVMs and alternate implementations. There's, I'm pretty sure there's JVMs in Java. <laughs> um, <laughs> Right, so there's there's all sorts of like basically every language. I'm pretty sure there's JVM implementations in Go. I, mm -hmm. I don't think they're like prod ready, but like they, you know, people have given it a shot. Mm -hmm. So there there's all sorts of JVMs in all sorts of different languages, and it's, uh, you can do it too. Um, I mean, obviously, you probably don't want to spend enough time to have a production ready JVM that requires <laughs> probably like a man's century or something like that. Yeah, exactly. That's too big of a task, but like as a as a learning project, yeah, you can do it. You can look at the spec and you can parse a class file. You could you could figure out like where the bytecode is and you can execute the bytecode. Um, you know, I think about those tasks of Hercules. You know, like the crazy things people do. And you look at uh, there was even a Windows ninety five. Did you see this recently? There was a Windows ninety five uh, implementation. Like they ran the actual Windows ninety five binaries in JavaScript in a browser. <laughs> <laughs> Probably just as slow too, you know. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Up. The, da -da, you know, really slow. Yeah, um, just so, because you can doesn't mean you should. Right, right, right. All about shoulda, not coulda. Um, and then people in Minecraft doing CPUs and stuff. But, 
but you know the point being that it's you're right it's good practice it's a good way of thinking about how these things are structured and really learning more about them um and i do think like for an internal conference especially you know you this is one of those things that that you know you don't have to worry about being camera perfect in everything you do you just want to learn and share your learning um, I think that's so important. I think it's one of the things I love that Chariot does is that we care about our people sharing things with each other, um, you know, and really kind of making sure that people know that it's it's great to learn new things because we we end up doing new business and different technologies, not because we get a sales call in it most of the time. It's because we know it because we've been paying attention to it. And then all of a sudden we can actually say, oh, well, three or four of our people have been researching this for this long and, you know. Uh, we wouldn't have done JavaScript. We wouldn't have done mobile unless we did those kind of things or any of the other texts that we've worked on. The closure, for example, you know, you guys brought that to us. Yes, that, so. I, I definitely agree with that. I think a lot of, um, a, a lot of our stuff is you know, driven just by wanting to learn about it. Yeah. And then that kind of drives everything else. Um, and I, I think that's actually a good thing. Um, yeah. So closure is another one of those things where, you know, we're looking into it and, you know, now we have closure work. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm on the closure project, right? And it's, I How think long have you been on the closure project? Five years, six years, more than that, right? A long time, yeah. Yeah, um, that's really good. Yeah, so, we've, we've had a few. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so over those years, like it, I'm, I'm throwing a, a, a random softball at you, but um, like being someone who did a lot of Java before and also did a lot of Python, I think you learned Python. I think you said in the talk that was one of your first languages you learned. Um, that was but, a long time ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you've worked with a lot of Java, and then you ended up in Closure. Like, what what are your favorite things about Closure that you that you would say to someone who's you know interested in a different language? Uh, uh, okay, I know think. it's a complete throw curve at yeah, you, but there, there, no, there, there are a few things that I, mm-hmm. I really like. Um, one is that, um, or, and maybe this is number one. I don't know. Let's 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 put it this way. This is, these are not in order. Um, right. These are just like cool things. Right. Uh, REPL-driven development is really really different, um, especially like in the Lisp, like like closure, than um, other languages I've ever worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, there's languages that have like REPLs, like Python and etc. Like uh, Ruby and, and, I, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. It's not like it's not quite the same. Um, so there's uh, closures, REPL driven experiences, very, very different. Um, I don't know how to really to describe it to a person that hasn't seen it. I mean, there's screencasts on YouTube. So yeah. if anybody wants to see an example, they should like just, you know, go to YouTube and, and Google or Google, uh, go to YouTube and search for a closure, you know, REPL, you know, coding demo or something like that. And you'll kind of see what I'm talking about. But your, your whole program is kind of alive, right? And you play with it and incrementally figure out what it's supposed to do um, and then do it and then save the result. So it's basically you have an editor that's integrated with your code, that's integrated with a lo- uh, live, uh, you know, your, your program running live. Yeah. And you get to, you know, play with it and incrementally change it as at runtime. And that's pretty incredible. I haven't really experienced it with any other languages, um, actually, not any non-Lisp languages. Right. Um, right. The um, the other thing is um, it's 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 a functional immutable uh, immutable by default, I should say, uh, mm-hmm. programming language. So functional programming, right? That um, I feel that's 
pretty well known in the industry at this point. Um, but the closure is one of those languages that uh, lets you do that. Um, and it's in, you know, part of being a functional programming language, right? Like the data structures are immutable, um, which is also, it's a very different way. Well, sort of different. I don't want to say very different, but it's a, it's a kind of different way of working with, um, uh, with the language and solving problems. Like uh, the reason I say kind of different is because once you learn some of the patterns, you're like, all right, well, this is how I do it in Java, right? But like mutating an object, this is how I do it in Clojure. And it actually ends up looking sort of similar, but it's, um, but it is very different. And to be clear for everybody who's watching this, if you haven't seen Clojure, it's a JVM language. So one of the one of the benefits of the JVM is because of this open source spec uh, of the language internals and everything, and how the the class files are structured and operations are structured with the bytecode. Um, you can write languages on top of the Java virtual machine, and Clojure is one of those languages. Now, Clojure also can run on .NET and other things as well, but. Uh, the main JavaScript. use JavaScript, yeah, right, CLJ, right? Uh, yes, yeah, CLJS, yeah, but everything runs in JavaScript, so people shouldn't be surprised. Right, <laughs> right, but I mean, the main the main focus is that if you've got a lot of Java, you've got great interop there because you can do just like you can with Scala and other languages, but you have good interop with the Java classes you might have as well in a project. Yeah, and this is why I didn't want to really rate them because that's definitely like if that wasn't there, yeah, um, like I don't usually think about that day to day, but if that wasn't there it'd be very hard to do anything practical, right? Right. Because Java just has such a plethora of libraries uh, for everything. Yeah. Databases, like, and all these things are basically proven, right? Like, if you want to use, you know, I don't know, you want to connect to Oracle, you want to connect to Postgres, you want to connect to whatever. Yeah. Right? There's probably a Java driver. It's probably got a lot of users, so you know that thing is solid. Yeah. Or at least as solid as anything else that could be, right? Because sure, sure. Uh, so stuff like that, right? Like you want to you want to connect to Kafka, you want to connect to Rabbit MQ, you want to you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's all there. You need a client of some sort. You need HTTP, right? It's it's all there. Um, so and it's all easy to call from Clojure. So mm -hmm. from a practical standpoint, and from a deployment standpoint too. Like okay, it's just a jar. Right. Uh, right. You know, like operations knows what to do with the jar. Um, and then. So, so in the closure community, there is a database uh, that people have been using called Datomic, right? But you, you've been researching, as we talked about before the show, you've been researching a newer uh, database that came out, open source database, right? So first, tell us a little bit about what Datomic is, and then tell us a little bit about this new open source database. Right. So Datomic is a uh, brainchild of Rich Hickey, mm -hmm. um, who is the founder of Clojure, uh, the inventor, I guess. Um, and... The thing with Datomic is it's basically um, like an asset database, right? But it's distributed into different parts, right? You have, um, he kind of pulled apart, you know, a regular database, right? And you've got storage, you've got a transactor, et cetera, et cetera. And it's got really nice features um, that are not easily duplicated in other databases, um, which is that you have history, right? So like everything you write is kind of like an immutable snapshot in time. And so you can go back in time and you can query like, well, what was the state of the database 10 minutes ago? Right, so part of the problem that I run into a lot uh, with SQL databases or with other databases is something went wrong, right? And you've been asked to fix it. And the only time dimension that you really have in most environments are log files. 
Yeah. Right? Because that's the only thing that like you can look back and say like, well, what happened? And if those log files aren't quite up to snuff or for whatever reason, you know, some information wasn't logged, you're kind of in trouble. You're like, all right, well, there's an entity that was updated. <laughs> uh, I don't know what it was like before. Um, or to get something got deleted, right? Like, I don't know what it was like before. That's it. You're kind of stuck. Um, a lot of times you're left making inferences, right? You're like, well, I can't tell you 100%, but I think this and this happened. And usually, you know, if you have enough experience with the system, you can kind of guess accurately enough at it and you'll be right. Um, sometimes you won't be and sometimes you just don't know. Um, if you're new, good luck, right? So Datomic kind of solves that problem, right? You can say like, all right, well, what was the state of this system two days ago? Let's look. Oh, and then this happened. So that type of stuff, that those type of problems that could take hours or days to try to debug um, become trivial to debug, um, right? And like, we don't have space issues anymore, right? Like you can have, you know, terabytes upon terabytes of data, right? So like, there's no reason to update in place a lot of times, or at least not as a default. Right, so like you want to, you know, accrete data, not really just like smash it in place. Um, so that's basically, you know, part of the pitch for Datomic. Um, so the thing I don't like about Datomic is that it's a proprietary database. Um, so that's personally, you know, I don't, you know, having a database that's not like super mainstream be proprietary is kind of problematic because. Um, well, for obvious reasons, right? Like, let's say it stops being maintained anymore. Like, what do you do? Finding people who know it. Right. You know, there, there's all sorts of issues around that. But I mean, yeah. there, with any of that stuff, it's finding people who know it. But but when it's proprietary as well, it kind of makes the barrier to learning it and working with it right. higher. And I mean, some for some databases, that's okay, right? Sure. Because they're just they're just so huge that like, okay, it'll be fine. You know, no, no matter what happens, you know, this database is going to continue to exist. I feel like, for instance, the two examples of that are probably like DB2 and Oracle, right? Right. <laughs> like that's learned, probably shouldn't be too worried about those things, you know, going the way of the dodo. Right. You know, plenty of people who know them, plenty of books on the subject, right. plenty of certifications for people so, who are getting started, et cetera. Yeah. Right. So as a technologist, I'm not too scared of those two solutions, right? Because I know like, forget about the technical merits, just, you know, from those stand, like they'll still be around. Mm-hmm. There's just too many systems on them right now. Um, for smaller databases, right? If you're a new entrant into a market, right? That that's tricky, right? Like you need. I feel like you need to be open source nowadays to compete almost. Yeah. Um, so Crux um, is basically a take on that. Uh, it's an open source database. Um, go on GitHub. You can check it out. Um, it's written in Clojure um, for the most part. Uh, and it gives you the same type of, uh, you know, time traversal, time dimension that Datama gives you, but it also gives you actually two time dimensions, um, which uh, it's kind of difficult to talk about without examples. So I recommend for people that are interested in these type of concepts to make it more concrete, because I don't want to just talk about it and then, you know, maybe it won't make sense. Uh, go to Wikipedia and um, you know, look up a temporal database, right? And I'll I'll, I'll post the link, um, and that will kind of like then they have an example, um, right? Of like what a uh, temporal database should be able to capture, right? And you can kind of compare that here. Yeah, 
I'll put this in the... I'm going to grab it and throw it up on here. Yeah. You were doing just the Wikipedia temporal databases? I'll, I'll send it to you. I don't know if you can yeah. see it. Yeah. Okay. And that kind of gives you the use case. And then just go to the example. Um, I'll, I'll read it real quick. Um, sure, sure. Good. So people have an idea. So here's a, you know, fictional person named John Doe. Um, and here's a little bit about him, right? Like his, his biography. John Doe was born on April 3rd, 1975 in the kids hospital of Madison County, a son of Jack Doe and Jane Doe who lived in Smallville. Uh, Jack Doe proudly registered the birth, birth of his firstborn on April 4th, 1975 uh, at the Smallville City Hall. John grew up as a joyful boy, turned out to be a brilliant student and graduated with honors in 1993. After graduation, he went on to live on his own in Big Town. Although he moved out on August 26, 1994, he forgot to register to change the address officially. It was only at the turn of the seasons that his mother reminded him that he had to register, which he did a few days later on December 27, 1994. Although John had a promising future, his story ends tragically. John Doe was accidentally hit by a truck on April 1, 2001. The coroner reported his death, his date of death, on the very same day, right? So, this little fictional story, right, is a pretty typical of real life use cases, right? Like where, when you, there's a difference between when something happened and when something got recorded, and you know, potentially there could be mistakes made and something needs to be corrected, right? So, like, imagine if you had a SQL database that's like a conventional schema where you're just updating stuff in place. Yep. How much of this richness and, you know, auditing history you would lose. Right. Right. And right. I feel like typically when we work with um, update and place databases, right, most of this type of stuff gets lost, right? Like, oh, he was born on April 3rd, but it was only recorded on April 4th. Right. Stuff yeah, like because that. you have to write basically some sort of log mechanism for it, some sort of uh, history and yeah. usually doing that right is difficult to do for every entity you have. So does it make really much sense to do that in a relational database without going crazy? Right, exactly. And then there's cases like, oh, well, he forgot to register, right? Like, yeah. and that happened way later, right? Like, okay, well, August 26th, right? Or, you know, um, yeah. or, or August, uh, December 27th is when he registered. But August 26th is when it actually happened. Right, right, right. And then April 1st, right, he dies, but and then he gets recorded the same day. But what if he got recorded a different day, right? Mm -hmm. Or if there was a mistake and then you have to go correct it, right? So maybe the coroner screwed up the months or something like that. That happens. That's real life. And I feel like in most of the information systems that um, we as consultants deal deal with, like this this happens. Yeah. Right? Like, like real life is messy. And unfortunately, you can't just say, okay, well, born April 3rd, you know, died April 1st, you know, everything is, everything is okay. And moved on April 20th or August 26th, right? Yeah. Real life is messy. So I feel like these type of motivating examples really show um, the type of stuff that would, wouldn't it be nice if your database handled this type of type, type of these type of problems out of the box. Um, so a lot of times, right? Like a, a more boring scenario is let's say you're migrating systems and you're importing like, so, in the original system, right? Something got recorded with a date, but then you're importing into a new system, right? Like, wouldn't you want to know when you imported this stuff? Like, I understand that from a business standpoint, right? Something happened, 
you know, on X date, right? Mm-hmm. You'd also want to know when it was imported into the, into the new system too. And you'd want to be able to query on that. So Crux supports um, those type of use cases um, pretty much out of the box. Um, like again, it's still it's still got work to do. It's still an open source database, right? There's bugs, et cetera. But sure. I feel like, in my opinion, it has a lot of promise. Um, Very cool. Okay. And I think, you know, stuff like this will be the, you know, killer app um, in the future. All right. Let me drop a link into your, um, into the thing here uh, for your baby JVM talk for mm-hmm. a second too. So people can find that. Uh, I have it right here. So I should say that I'm not the only person in a chariot who's looking into it. Um, there's other mm-hmm. people. There's the crux, one that yeah. I know of uh, who's also doing stuff with it. So let me put that also in here. So here's Crux for people who are interested. You could take a look at the comments on our feed here, uh, and so you'll see the the Crux uh, GitHub project. And also, if you click on a link at the top of that, uh, somewhere in here, there it is. That's the main kind of site to you know kind of outline what it is. Open Crux. I'll throw that in there as well. Yeah, they yeah. have tutorials too. Like they have like little mm-hmm. detective stories, like sort of like you know the John Paper or, or the John Doe. Uh, fictional character that I read about in Wikipedia, they have something like that too, where you can play with uh, Crux and kind of get results. So, so just out of curiosity, and, and I won't spend much more time on Crux, but you can you can do uh, web service calls to it, I guess, or yeah. use an API, so you don't have to just write close your code against yeah. it in case you have to work with something else. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, All right. So the other thing is, like, this will probably you know, to bring it back to you know. Uh, learning stuff, right? Like we're, we're it's probably <laughs> going to be a, uh, you know, one of our, you know, internal conference talks, either for me or maybe for, for a few other people. And that's it kind of, you know, motivates you to, you know, sort of flush out the use cases and try to get something working so you can have a demo and show people. It's it's great fun. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. At some point, you know, if we, once we feel like this is this is the way to go, you know, maybe it will become you know, a solution to a problem that we have. And for you developers out there that are just getting started maybe, or, you know, just going down your journey and, and want to kind of sharpen your tools as you're going along, there's nothing better than working up something to explain to other people. So whether it's writing a blog article, you know, doing some sort of video on it, if you like to do Twitch, for example, and you're really good at kind of tap dancing on your feet, you could do that. Um, even just the process of getting to the point where you can do that is a huge leg up for you in terms of the way your skills will improve. Um, and we've all been doing that for years here at Chariot. We just think it's so important. Uh, and it's one of the single best things you can do, I think, to improve your skills is to really have to explain things to others. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said. It's, cool. it's, it's fantastic. Um, it really fantastic. is. I mean, I wish there was a better way of doing it, but there isn't, so this is it. <laughs> the only way around is through it. That's the way I look yeah, at it. Like, you've right. got to plow through, and then when you've plowed through something and you've gone through the pain, the positives, everything else, you can come out the other side and tell someone else what, what, what your experiences were, and that's, and then you end up knowing a lot more about it than you did when you started. So very important skill to, to hone over time, and you're never perfect at it. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to take left and right turns. It's important to take those left and right turns and learn things that become dead ends because you can then say, you know what, I know enough about this that it's not going to a work for me or work for my business or that it's just not the right technology for the for the job. But just getting in there and looking at other things will sharpen your skills. You yeah, know? that's 
that's the thing I'd, I'd like to add to that. Like once you went through that, um, a lot of times, and I know, Ken, you know this, um, mm. like when you're, I mean, I don't want to say good, but like you're pretty good, right? Like I'm pretty good at some stuff, right? I don't want to say I'm like, oh, I'm you know, really good at this, but like I'm, uh, I know a little bit about some stuff. When, and the problem is when you get to that level, you see how much, like the internet is a great place, but there's a lot of junk on the internet too. Yeah, And true. like you'll be able to much quicker filter out the junk on the internet because I know mm -hmm. you know you and I do that all the time yeah like somebody's given some sort of advice and you're like mm -mm, no that's not good advice don't <laughs> it doesn't do pass the sniff test right well, exactly like, done this before this is not good advice right like right. this is not how you're supposed to do something like that right and I don't want to call it out but like you, you see a lot of times when you don't have your own experience and you just like google stuff um and you see something like on stack overflow or somewhere else or in somebody's blog you know and you you think they're authoritative and then you're like hmm and sometimes it takes a little bit of experimenting with that to see. Sometimes it takes digging into yeah. the source code a little bit more or, you know, really thinking through the approach. And then other times it's very obvious, like it's a paragraph and you're like, mm, yeah, thanks. No, you know, or, yeah, or it's a piece of code that's committed to advice. once. Yeah. Right. Right. And it's, it really helps filter that out when you're like, okay, well, this isn't, this isn't right. <laughs> like I know situational awareness. I know this because I've spent, you know, weeks playing with this and I know it's not like this. True. Right. Or some people will, you know, omit stuff. Right? Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, this this works great. And I'm like, yeah, it does. What about this, though? <laughs> right. What about you get to a certain thing, size and it falls over? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. That other, that other thing makes this advantage, you know, move. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Dan, listen, it's been fantastic talking to you for the hour. I really appreciate it. We don't get a chance to talk enough. So I know. It was a good one. I'll see you in person sometime soon. I know. Tell me about it. All right, Dan. Thanks so much. That's yep. Dan Boykus, everybody. Yep. Bye, everyone. All right. And that, yeah, that covers uh, our Tech Chat Tuesday for this week. So I'm Ken Rimple, and thank you very much, and we'll see you next week.